words. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have helped, how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants, and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on, came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds. We must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord. For that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land all the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind has brought, had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that, that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin. Please only this once and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pled with the Lord. And the Lord had turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was, a pitch dark, there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us sacri have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care 
never to see my face again. For on that day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your holy word, God. And that you are calling us to be people who listen to it, who obey it. That we would be people who have built our foundation upon the rock. And that is by listening and obeying your words, God. I pray for the people, our people right here, our church family at Cross Point, that God, by your spirit at work in us, you would guide us into all truth. That God, you would guide us in your direction, O Lord. Not any man's direction, not my direction, not the elder's direction, but God, your direction, your will, and your purposes and plans for your church, God. Those are priority. And so I pray, give us wisdom as we take the next step as a church family in installing elders, God. I pray and thank you for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace that you have given us here at Crosspoint. Maintain that, God. Sustain that, Lord. God, I thank you uh, for our teachers that we have here, that we were just able to celebrate yesterday in our teacher training, God, that you have blessed Crosspoint Baptist Church with teachers who love the Bible and who want to see students grow in the maturity of faith in Christ Jesus. And so, God, I pray that you would use our teaching times here at Crosspoint whether that be in preaching or in Sunday school or in any other avenue, God, that you would use these, those times by your spirit and your word to grow us in maturity, to look more like Jesus, to grow us in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Lord, I thank you, God, that you are using people in Cross Point Baptist Church to further and advance your kingdom in their particular vocations. I thank you for Hannah Folks and how she has used her, her skills and talents that you have given her to bring glory to your name through education. God, I pray that you would continue to, uh, to bless her and her uh, work, God. And Lord, I just pray for all of us in our different vocations, whether that be teachers, engineers, uh, 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 mothers and fathers, and, and, and anyone, God, that, that serve you and love you, that God, they would serve you for your glory in their particular vocations, because God, you have appointed those for us. God, I do pray, Lord, that you would be with us now. Open up our eyes, illuminate, God, our minds and hearts so that we may, be, may see the glories of who you are in your text, that we may be called to repentance and faith, and that we may be urged and motivated to obey and live for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. This is the... Um, in the plague narratives, this is the kind of final, uh, final measure of the crescendo. Next week will kind of be the ultimate culmination of all the plague narratives. Because the plagues will kind of end. It will force Pharaoh's hand to fully let go and give in. And the death of the firstborn. And so right here in these final two plagues of, of locust and darkness, we're, we're hearing the drums build up. Until it's going to finally be a big boom next week. The big boom. And so, this is what we have here in the plague of locusts and darkness. It's kind of the lightning before the thunder. Is that the volume is increasing and literally the lights are fading. And it has all the ingredients of a tragic ending. And that what Pharaoh and Egypt and what we are going to learn just by reading these texts is this. Is that God, this God, we are to be in submission to the God of light. And that he is the solution to dark lands and dark hearts is what we'll see here in this plague of locusts and plague of darkness. 
And so looking in your Bibles at the first two verses, here's one point I want to make for us as we begin in these first two verses. Is that the first point is this, is that this is going to be a story for generations to come. What we've been reading so far is plague narratives, and they might seem isolated, and they might seem un- unimportant for, for your lives, for your children's lives, for your grandchildren's lives. What's the point of the plague narratives? Well, there is an importance here, and it's an important story for generations to come. You might have found yourself maybe at the dinner table retelling stories that your parents told you, that, their grand, that your grandparents told them, that their grandparents told them, and things like that. Anybody ever had an experience like that? You, you're sitting at a table and you realize you're telling a story uh, to your children about something that your parents told you or your grandparents told you. I was, uh, this actually happened to me just this past week. I was talking with, with Jude about uh, World War II and I was telling him about my, the stories that I had received from, from my grandfather about World War II. I had to, uh, I had to limit the details and, and, uh, and, 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 and take out some of the other parts, but it was just fun to retell stories that my grandfather had told me about his experiences in the war. And so th- th- there's a point to retelling stories, right, to our children and their grandchildren, things like that, is that, one, it's part of their story, too, right? That my grandfather fought in Okinawa, and thankfully, praise God, he didn't die, because if he had died, y'all would not be blessed with Wes McKay. It would be a very sad life for y'all, right? But his story and his experience has an impact in shaping my life. It's part of my story as well. And not only is his story actually part of my story, but his stories and the lessons that he gives me, actually, they are lessons for me, right? They teach me things. His experiences that he had in the war were lessons to be reiterated to me to teach me different life lessons. That's what telling stories does. Stories passed down teach and reiterate things and lessons to us. And that's the same, the same is true for Israel, that they are told to don't stop telling these stories of what happened here in Egypt. These stories don't stop just when Israel gets out of Egypt. No. It's that these are to be passed down to subsequent generations. And that's what he's saying here in the first two verses of chapter 10. Listen to this. All these signs are happening among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them. And so their job for subsequent generations is that what has happened to you here, what you've seen with your eyes and experienced, Israelites, is that you're to tell this story to your sons and your grandsons so that they would pass it down to their sons and their grandsons and their grandchildren and their grandchildren. That's their job. So they can know that this is actually their story as well. And that's why you'll see throughout the Bible, so many times other biblical authors will retell the story of the Exodus. They'll retell the story. Because it's part of Israel's story, even though they may not have been there. Right? Is that their sons and their grandsons and so on must hear of the Lord's great acts of judgment and salvation in the land of Egypt. Because it's not just this Israel's story, it's the story for generations to come. And up until this point in the Exodus narratives, we've been told that all these signs and wonders and judgments and plagues are occurring so that Egypt may know the Lord. That they may know that there is no one else like Yahweh. 
They are seeing his excellence. They are seeing his majesty. They are seeing his power. They are seeing his sovereignty. All these things are occurring so that Egypt will know, you don't know anybody like this Yahweh. There is no one who can compare to him. There's no one. But now, what we're hearing here is this in verse 2. Is that all these signs that I've done among them, you're supposed to tell them, and here's the last phrase, that you may know that I am the Lord. So it's not just so Egypt will know, it's that you and your sons and your grandsons and their grandchildren and their great-great-grandchildren will know there is no one like God. There is no one like Him. There is a very important feature here in this text that is certainly applicable to us. Something that we just celebrated last week. There's a reason why we do parent-child dedication. It's to remind parents and grandparents and even anybody in the church. It's important that we pass down the truth of the gospel and the truth of who God is to our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Because spiritual memory loss is a real thing. Spiritual memory loss is a real thing. It happens. I mean, take, for example, Israel in the wilderness. They totally forgot what God had done for them. And it wasn't very long, right? And it continues to be Israel's story. They forget, they forget, they forget. And you know, Winston Churchill said this in his famous darkest hours, finest hours speech. He said, those that who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And so there's a point where not learning history you're actually doomed to repeat it over and over and over again, the failures of history. But by reminding yourself of history and what has occurred, you learn from history and you learn what not to repeat. They're failures. And so spiritual memory loss is a real thing of what God has done. And that's why he's saying continue to tell your sons and your grandsons in their hearing of what God did in Egypt. And like Israel, our responsibility is to communicate and disciple our children, the children in our church, grandchildren, to disciple them so that they too would know the story of the Lord and that it would be passed down for generations to come. We read this verse last week, Psalm 78. It says this, These things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us, so they heard it from their ancestors, psalmist says. We will not hide them from their descendants, we will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and His wonders He has done. It is our responsibility to communicate the truths of the gospel to the generations that come after us. Whether that be our children or not, that be, may be the children that God has given us to steward here at Crosspoint Baptist Church. It is our responsibility as parents, grandparents, and as a church community to pass on and maintain the truths of the gospel and communicate them. It is all of our responsibility. And here is what I fear. I fear that we have gotten, may get into this, is that we believe that the knowledge of the gospel is almost genetically passed down. It's almost like learned like by spiritual osmosis. Like it's just, it, it, it just, it's it just built in. Crosspoint Baptist Church, listen to this. It's not. Don't ever assume, don't ever assume that just because children uh, brought them to church or because they live with me in their home, that they will just genetically know the truth. Don't believe that. Don't assume that your children, parents, 
grandparents, just by living with you, will naturally pick up the truth. That's a really, <laughs> well, just by living with me, I don't have to say anything to my children. They'll just turn out being people of the truth. That says a lot about you, like that your just presence is so awesome that it just like, you know, your glory just gets on their faces, right? Like it's just communicated to them. That's not how truth is passed down. It doesn't work like that. It has to be actively taught, passed down, reiterated, overemphasized in the home and in the church. We have to normalize gospel conversations. We have to normalize them. You know, we should make hats. Make gospel conversations great. Again, if they ever were great in the first place. Make them normal. It's where when you bring up the gospel in your home with your children, that they shouldn't have this, this thing like, oh, you're talking to me about Jesus? This is kind of odd, mom, dad. Like, this is kind of weird. Grand, granny, papa, like, what? we've never talked about this before. It's kind of weird. Like, that's, that's odd that you would say anything about Jesus. We have to normalize gospel conversations in our home where it is always on our lips. We're always talking about it. And where children in the future can say, yeah, that was just kind of what we normally talked about. Or will our children say this? Yeah, when we sat at the dinner table, we just always talked about sports. Or yeah, when we sat down at the dinner table, we just always talked about, you know, the, the football game. Or we just always talked about, you know, work. Or we just always talked about, you know, whatever. Will our children and our grandchildren say, it was just normal to talk about Jesus in the home? Well, they say that here, even of the church. Is it normal among us to talk about Jesus? Or when we get in a conversation, it's just kind of like, oh, dude, let's save that for Sunday. Like, that's when we talk about Jesus. Monday through Saturday, dude, give me a break. Sunday's enough. Right? Is that how some of you feel? Hey, I don't need too much Jesus. I get enough on Sunday. So don't, Monday through Saturday, give me a break. That's, that's not the Bible, what the Bible calls us to is that it should be a regular part of our routine and pattern here at Crosspoint, of telling the story, of talking about the story. So maybe that means for you, like this week, say, hey, look, I'm going to call you on Thursday morning on our way to work, and we're going to talk about the gospel. We're going to talk about what the Lord's doing in our lives. Hey, you know, we're going to meet up for coffee once every month, and we're just going to talk about, we're going to talk about Jesus. Hey, you know what, we're going to... um. We're, we're going to get breakfast one morning. You know what? We're just going to talk about this really difficult passage that I've been, I've been just mulling over in my mind. What if we had a culture here at Crosspoint like that where it's not odd, it's not awkward, it's not weird, it's not super spiritual to just talk about Jesus? Why don't we create that culture here? Because it's a culture that needs to be in the church and in the home where it's normal for us to retell the story. Because guess what? It's so easily, it's so easy to lose the story. I think about churches like Jonathan Edwards Church. Jonathan Edwards, one of the most famous preachers that's ever walked the face of the earth. He preached the gospel to his church. You know what his church is right now? Progressive, LGBTQ affirming. If you were to tell Jonathan Edwards that, you know what, about 300 years, that's what your church is going to be. They're like, over my dead body. But how does that happen? 
because we forget to retell the story and talk about and maintain the truths. Crosspoint, we have to tell the story, retell it to our homes, to our church. How will future generations assess us with how we did in protecting the gospel and passing down the gospel? How will future generations assess us as a church, as a family, as fathers and mothers, as grandparents? How will history remember us? Because, you know, in the story that they're supposed to be retold, history doesn't remember Pharaoh very well. Doesn't remember him very well at all. I don't really, I, I don't get accounts in the Bible saying like, you know what, at the end of the day, Pharaoh was a pretty good guy. You know, he had a lot of struggles, but a pretty good guy. That's not how history remembers Pharaoh. This is how history will remember Pharaoh. Resistant, rebellious. Let's look at point number two, verses three through 11. Is that history will remember Pharaoh for his resistance and rebellion and refusal, despite all warnings, despite all, all attempts. You know, I was, uh, I was Googling, and from personal experience, I have found the most impossible task for a human being to do. It's actually true. Most impossible task. Reasoning with a two-year-old. It's the most impossible task. When a person does it, they'll get their name on the front of Guinness World Book of Records. You can't reason with a two-year-old. Their judgment is so clouded by what's right here. They don't see over here, right? So you're trying to explain to a two-year-old why we should brush their teeth or why we should, why we should change their clothes or why we should give them a bath. And look, I'm not speaking from personal experience, but, but they don't understand. Hey, you, ne- you haven't taken a bath for two months. I say that's your mom's fault, not mine. Um, but but you got to take a bath. You really smell. You really smell. you got to brush your teeth. They're brown, right? I don't need to brush my teeth. I don't need to. I don't need, I don't need to do that, right? It's impossible. You cannot reason with a two-year-old. There's no rationality there. There's no reason. Their judgment is clouded by their limited perspective, right? Can't see. And right now at this point in Exodus 10, Pharaoh is like a toddler right now. There's no reasoning. There's no rationale with Pharaoh. He cannot be convinced. The evidence will not change his mind at this point. Look at this, how these verses begin. As they begin with the phrase uh, in verse 3, how long? And then it happens again in verse 7. How long? Verses 3 through 11 are kind of bracketed by these just these two-word phrases. How long? How long? That's what it's bracketed by. It's bracketed by a plea from Moses and Aaron and also by the Egyptians themselves. Moses and Aaron, they come along and they say, how long are you going to keep on this train, this trajectory of refusing, refusing to submit to Yahweh? How long are you going to keep doing this? Because if you don't, there's going to be utter devastation. And that's what they says. How long are you going to keep refusing? Because if you do it again, here's what's going to happen. He's refusing warnings at this point. Look what he says. How long? Because if you don't, this is what's going to happen. Locusts are going to come into your country. They're going to come and they're going to cover the face of the land. A really similar phrase that happens in Genesis 6 and 9. And that speaks of the floodwaters, that the waters cover the face of the land, the face of it. Now, 
The locusts are taking the position of the waters in Genesis 6 and 9. The locusts are now going to cover the face of the land here, like the floodwaters. They are going to eat everything, right? Anything that the hail didn't destroy, don't you worry, the locusts will take care of it, right? Any other resources that you had left over from what the hail destroyed, locusts will get it. They're going to fill everything, what it says. And that word fill is also interesting. Verse 6, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants. That fill word comes from Genesis 1, particularly Genesis 1.22, how they are to fill the earth and multiply. This is kind of like a bad filling, right? Not a bad feeling, a bad filling, right? Is that, yeah, humans, they're supposed to grow and multiply and, you know, now the locusts are taking that job and they're filling the earth, right? They're filling the earth. And they're going to destroy everything. He's not listening to warnings, even the warning of coming doom and destruction of his land. It's like when you're driving on a road and you see a sign that says bridge out. And maybe you're the person that keeps driving. And another sign says bridge out two miles. Another sign says bridge out half a mile. Another says Please stop. Next sign. No, stop seriously. No, next sign. Stop, you're going to die. Oh, next sign. Okay, later. Right? It's like all these signs over warning you. Stop, red flags, don't do it, stop, stop. Okay, whatever. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. That's how we're getting at with Pharaoh right now. Every sign and warning, stop, 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 stop. Continual refusal. Right? And he's refusing even the warnings that Moses and Aaron give him. And not only that, he's refusing the pleadings and cries of his own people. Look at verse 7. Moses and Aaron are saying, how long? Now, now it, the, his own servants in Egypt are saying, how long are we going to do this, Pharaoh? Seriously? How long? How long is Moses going to be a snare to us, a problem for us? Because clearly he's caused us some problems. Right? How long? Don't you see? It's over. Do you not understand, Pharaoh, that Egypt is ruined? We're done. The battle's over. You're saying, push forward, push forward. We don't have anybody to push forward with. There's no more battle in us. We've lost. We have lost. How can you not catch on to this, Pharaoh? He doesn't listen to the pleadings of his own people. And not only does he not listen to them, in his hardness of heart, he's now manufacturing in his own mind, there must be a hidden agenda by what they're requesting from me. They, they have, an, what it says, an evil purpose in mind in what they're asking me for. They must be, it, there must be something sinister going on. But all the while, people are saying, how can you not see the writing on the wall, Pharaoh? How can you not see? And here's the reason why. Why he can't see, why he's a toddler and he can't see past his limited judgment. Sin makes us stupid, unreasonable, and irrational. That's not just Pharaoh, that's us. Sin makes us stupid, unreasonable, and irrational. We don't think clearly. Sin will never be wise, it will never be smart, it will never be rational, it will never be the good decision in God's eyes. There's no this kind of like, I know I sinned. But you can see why that, the thing that I did was the best decision. There's none of that. There's none of that. It's sin, right? 
But this is what sin does. It makes us unreasonable. It makes us irrational, right? It blurs our minds and hearts to such a degree that we defy and reject reason, warning, appeal to turn around. It never leads us into more obedience. Not only that, sin also leads us to believe fallacies and lies, right? What the psalmist will say is this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The one who is in the light and the truth doesn't say that. But the fool does who is in their sin. So sin leads us to believe fallacies, to believe untruths, deceptions. That's what sin does. And maybe this morning, Christian, you're, that's where you're at this morning. And I, I just have to make a plea to you this morning. Right now, do you disregard God's word? Maybe disregard God's warnings from godly friends. Maybe you right now, you are walking in darkness and you say that you have fellowship with Him. That's actually a contradiction and cannot happen what 1 John 1, 1 6 says. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness and sin, we don't really have fellowship with God. Right now, your sin, whatever sin patterns is convincing you to believe lies and untruths, because that's what sin does. Sin wants you to believe things about God and about other people that are just not true. It may be convincing you right now like, oh, this is not that bad. Or I shouldn't be that worried about this. Or, you know, it's no big deal and things like that. That is sin trying to deceive you into believing something not true about God or His Word or other people. I would just say this morning, I, this, is my, this is my prayer this morning. For myself, am I in an area or in a pattern of sin where I have deceived myself into thinking that it's okay, that I'm all right, that it's not a big deal, or it was the best decision? Christian, this morning, don't disregard the warnings of of God's word. Don't disregard the warnings of other people. Remember, sin makes us irrational, unreasonable, and we see with a limited perspective. Christian, also this morning, do you see someone in this state around you? Maybe another Christian brother or sister who's right now walking in sin in a pattern of sin, who's been be- deceived to thinking that it's okay, that it's not wrong, that there's something good about that. Let me just say this. You have a responsibility as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, to warn people and say, that's false. That's a lie. That's not the truth. You are in danger. This is why there's warnings in Ezekiel about the watchman on the tower. We have to be the watchman and say, the enemy is coming. The enemy is coming. This morning, you may know a person who is walking in sin, who is in patterns that are dangerous to them, maybe to other people. And I would just say this, we have responsibility as a church to say, that is dangerous, and you need to turn now. Brother, I love you for your own good. You need to turn now. That is our responsibility. Do you see someone, and I would just encourage you to reach out and warn out of love and out of care for the other person. Because as we see, sin also leads to consequences. And there's consequences here for, for Pharaoh. 
not only will the locust destroy his land, but there will there will also be darkness. This is point number three, when God turns the lights out. Y'all know better than me, but usually when the lights go out, whether in a movie or just in general, it's never a good sign, right? When the lights go out, like at your home, it's not a good sign, right? It's either somebody cut the wrong cable, or there's a storm, or in a horror movie, somebody's going to end up dead, right? It never works out. And I would say that this kind of omen, or this kind of like sense of darkness being a bad thing, comes from the Bible. Darkness is not good. It's not. And so the darkness is Egypt's physical state. They're going to be dark. It's going to be dark there. But their darkness, their physical darkness, is representative of something much deeper. It's representative of their spiritual state, actually. Their lands are dark, but their hearts are also dark. And this is the connection between the final two plagues. I don't think that locusts and darkness are here just by, you know what, Moses is like, I'll just throw those two plagues, you know, the last ones, and yeah, they happen like that, but there's, or maybe God's doing it like coincidentally, yeah, you know what, I think this is a good time for locusts. Oh, you know what, this is a good time to shut their power off. This is a good time, right? Like they're coincidental, but I don't think they're coincidental. I think they're actually placed right next to each other because they historically happen that way. And two, they both have a similar thing, darkness. Is that when the locusts come, it says the people can't see each other. It's so dark. And it actually says the locusts darken the land. It was that, that's how much, how many locusts were there. It was so dark because there were so many locusts there. And so that theme of darkness that's associated with locusts now goes into, well, there's now actually darkness there. So there's first judgment by locusts, is that these locusts bring utter devastation, decreation, right? They will eat everything and even even the stuff that the hell didn't destroy, taking all the resources that, they, that Egypt has accrued. Pharaoh has accrued tons of resources and wealth and an empire, and God comes in and destroys it like that. It's kind of like Jude and Grant when they build a huge tower and that they're so excited about it, and then there comes the monster, Hayes, Walker McKay, who has no care or concern. Can I get an amen, Jude? No care or concern. And he doesn't just destroy the tower. He wants to humiliate it. So he kicks all the blocks everywhere. It's not just like taking them apart. It's kicking them under the couch. It's kicking them, you know, behind places that you got to crawl under. It's like total devastation where there's no, like, rebuilding at this point. It's just like, yeah, it's over. It's done. You know, let's play with another toy. Right? And this is what God is doing with, with the plague of locusts. He's taking away all their resources. It's done. You don't have any more food. Your empire has been ransacked, right? And look, if you don't know that, you know, that locusts are bad enough, locusts and, and the term east wind that happens here, the east wind brings in these locusts. Just for your rest of your Bible readings of the Bible, whenever east wind and locusts appear in the Bible, it's never a good thing or a sign of God's pleasure. Um, I don't think it's probably ever a sign of God's pleasure in the, our real life, like the sin locust. So I don't, 
I don't know if there's like a benefit to seeing a lot of locusts. But in the Bible, when east wind and locusts come, there are signs of judgment, right? East wind is a sign of judgment, and locusts are what the prophets use to describe Israel's enemies that God has appointed to bring judgment on Israel for their sins. So Assyria and Babylon, they're described as locusts when they come and destroy Israel. East wind is not a good wind. If you remember in Jonah chapter 4, when Jonah is at the peak of his disobedience and sin, God sends an east wind, and it wasn't to cool Jonah off. It was to make Jonah more scorching hot. East wind and locusts should be a sign. It's not good in Egypt. It's not good there. They are signs of divine judgment. And darkness is also a sign of judgment. Look, this is a reversal of Genesis 1, right? Genesis 1, God turns the lights on, right? And now, what is God doing? He's turning the lights off. Again, he has power over his creation. This is like decreation. This is God reversing the stability that Genesis 1 had. And look at the, just look at the details that we get about this darkness. This is a darkness to be felt. Whoa, pitch darkness, a darkness to be felt. Like It's so dark, it's like you can touch it. That's how thick it is. I don't, it's almost like a darkness that is almost chilling to your bones. I, I don't have any good examples of what this would look like, but I, I, I was looking up, you know, and, and maybe people who have traveled to Alaska can tell me this, but there's a, the northernmost city in America is in Alaska, and um, it, it's formerly known as the Barrow. And it has near constant darkness from mid to late November until late January. Because the sun never rises during that 60 day plus period. It has basically 67 days of full darkness. And I looked at the temperatures during those days. And they hit like negative 20. So just think about this. It's always cold. And it's like deathly chilling. For 67 days. Just to give you a frame of reference, that's what it seems to describe. It's a darkness to be felt in Egypt. Right? It's a darkness to be felt. And that God's people in the midst of this have light. Israel has light in the midst of this. But this darkness, not only is it a physical phenomenon for Egypt, it's also a spiritual one. It's not merely meteorological. It's a bad omen. This darkness is a judgment. Darkness will occur other places in the Bible. It's interesting that when Jesus is crucified, there is darkness over the land as a sign of judgment on the people who crucified him. In the end times, in Revelation 16, I won't tell you to turn there. We turn there every week. But Revelation 16, verse 10 says this. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish. That's how chilling it was. This darkness caused by the locust and caused by God turning out the lights is representative of Egypt and Pharaoh's spiritual state. It's not just coincidence that darkness just occurs. It represents their spiritual condition. And this represents the spiritual condition of everybody who 
who places themselves in rebellion and resistance and refusal to God. They are darkened in mind and in heart and understanding, doing evil deeds. Romans one twenty one. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him nor gave thanks to Him, but in their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. This is who people are apart from Jesus Christ. They are darkened in mind and in heart in their sin. They cannot see clearly. They don't have light. They don't. And this may be you this morning. Maybe you're in here, you're watching online, and you've realized that I'm in the dark. I'm in the dark. Not physical dark. I have lights in my home, but right now my heart is spiritually dark. You may be convinced this morning that you can see, that your perception is clear, that you walk in the light. But if you are in rejection to Christ, let me just say this. You are blind and you walk in utter darkness. That is the state of people in their sin. But what do darkened hearts and minds need? This morning, Cross Point. What do darkened hearts and minds need? They need light. They need light. And a light that only comes from God, the God of all lights. That's it. 1 John 1 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. Isaiah 9 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. John 8, 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Colossians 1, 12 through 14, and give joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let the Light shine out of darkness, made his light shine into our hearts in the giving us of the knowledge of God, of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a royal chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. People, people, what we need most, if you are in your sin and rebellion against God, rejection of his warning, what you need most this morning, you need light that only comes from God. You need that kind of enlightenment. You don't need to read more books. You don't need to listen to more podcasts. You need light, spiritual, supernatural light that only comes from God. And that light, if you want your hearts enlightened this morning, all you have to do is place your faith in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. Your hearts will be open. You will see the great light. And guess what? Walking in the light of Christ Jesus is so much better than walking in darkness thinking you know that you see, but you really don't see anything at all. Thinking that you are safe, but you are rather in the most danger. It's like sitting on train tracks in your car and saying there's no train coming, when everybody around you is saying, train, 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 train. You're in the dark this morning. Christ Jesus offers you the light of the world because he is the light of the world. You don't have to walk in darkness anymore. This morning, by repenting, placing your trust in Jesus Christ, you can walk in the light. This is the gospel. We are dead in our sins. We have all walked in darkness. But God, in his loving mercy, has sent the great light into the world. He is the light. 
And those who repent and trust in Christ can walk in dark, walk, walk out of darkness into the great light of Christ Jesus. So this morning, if you walk in darkness and you continue to walk in darkness and you want to continue to walk in darkness, let me just be a warning to you. As God, as Moses and Aaron, and as, as Pharaoh's own people warned him, your end is utter destruction and ruin if you continue to walk in darkness and not turn to the light that Christ Jesus offers. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. You are the God of all light, and you are the only one who can shine supernatural light into our hearts. Thank you for sending the light of the world into this world to bring us light. And I pray this morning that God, as Christians who follow Jesus, that we would walk in light and not in darkness because we have fellowship with you, O God. That we would run away from the darkness and only live in the light. This morning I pray for those who are still in the darkness that God, you would, you would change their hearts right now. Turn the lights of their hearts on right now to see the glories of God in the face of Jesus. We pray this all in your precious name, Christ Jesus.